back for another episode of On Air With, and I'm super excited that this is happening because I have old friend and new friend that uh, are both joining me. Um, so today, um, the topic is Black Art Matters, and uh, for those of you listening, you're about to find out what that means. But first, I would like to let our guests introduce themselves. So I guess we could start with you, Devon. Hi, uh, my name is Devon Miller, and I am the Director of Education and Community Partnerships for Dallas Summer Musicals. Hi, everyone. My name is Allison Bray, and I am the Program Manager for Education and Community Partnerships at Dallas Summer Musicals. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. So um, I guess since, since we just said where you're from, right? You're at Dallas Summer Musicals. So how about we just start with uh, what would be the obvious question since I said the title is Black Art Matters. Um, what is Black Art Matters? Um, because I, I asked this question first because even when I started seeing it on Facebook, I was def I was defining it two different ways. And I was like, Black Art Matters. Yes, it does. Wait, or do you mean the matters of Black Art? Like, what do you mean? <laughs> so, like, <laughs> so, so what is Black Art Matters? <laughs> Yeah, so I'm going to answer that in two ways as well, actually. So like in a literal sense, Black Art Matters is a weekly video series we do at DSM that highlights Black uh, artists, not only highlights them, it highlights their actual performative work, and then is a conversation between myself and that artist about Black identity and how their Black identity has shaped their creative world and creative experiences. So like that's what it is in like the most literal sense. But also what it is, is just a space for Black artists to be themselves and to share that for the world and for us to be able to financially support them in that effort during this time of need. Nice, nice. So what does it mean to you, Allison? Like what is, not necessarily the program itself, but just, or you could answer it in all of those ways. The program itself, what does it mean to you personally? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a native Dallasite, grew up here, have lived here pretty much my whole life aside for a couple of years when I was away for school. Um, and for a long time did not understand the history of this city as being one of, um, you know, the most racist and segregated cities in the South. Um, and especially working as an artist, as a young white artist, didn't fully understand um, that kind of separation that still exists in the theater industry and then, uh, you know, our artistic industries uh, beyond that as well. So Black Art Matters to me personally is a chance to get to uphold and honor and amplify the voices of Black artists who so traditionally, especially in musical theater, have been uh, like tokenized down to a single identity. Um, with Broadway as an industry being so white-led, um, I think there can be a really easy tendency to like put all of our black performers into the box of like the quote unquote black shows um, rather than letting them express their art to the full extent that it deserves to be expressed and, and focused on. So that's what black art matters uh, means to me personally is the chance to get to do that and just kind of blow up that whole concept of what black art 
podcast should and shouldn't be or is and is not. I'm doing air quotes for the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) But also, I like heard it. So it was totally fine. Like, I I heard it. I heard it. Even though I was looking at it, I absolutely heard it. Um, And that actually might lend itself to to um the next question in terms of why did you do it i think that that kind of answered a little bit of the question but what what was the moment and i have like two different things that i'm thinking um the thing that you just said reminded me of a song um my sister has done a couple of times uh called the random black girl um yeah what's the name it's it's what's the it was an soul yeah 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 and it um it reminded me of, of that because it, it, it does say the things that you're saying. It's like, this is this random black girl that's put in the show for like, you know, diversity. Yeah. And we have her fill this trope. Um, and it, it indicates that it's, it's not, it's also, even in the song, I think it says, it's not only just black women, it's like, at least she's not in Miss Saigon, which again is a whole other subject where you have a different group of people <laughs> forced into a specific uh, a role that they're required yeah. to play. Um, but I do want to know specifically, and, and since you've brought in specifically musicals, um, why, like, why did you do it? And what was the moment? Like, why now in particular? And it, was there a moment that said, okay, you know what, now? Because it sounds like it's something that you've recognized. And I know, Devon, you and I have talked about this excuse me, for years. So I know you've recognized it over, yeah. the, over the course of time. So why now? What was the moment? Want to get real for a second? Of what the was? Go ahead. Because I mean, it's, it's like an elephant. <laughs> well, yeah. So, elephant. I mean, the moment that sparked all of this was the murder of George Floyd, in which our organization really took a hard look at itself and its internal practices and its external programming and said, finally, after 80 years of a not so great history with um, people of color in those communities, we looked at ourselves and said, we have to do better, especially since we sit in the heart of a incredibly beautifully diverse community ourselves. Um, So that is what the spark of what this kind of new wave of programming was for us. Um, And then as Allison so beautifully said, our industry is, you know, inherently racist in itself from the top down. It just, it is what it is. And you can hear our artists talk about that when we interview them. Um, So we felt like we had a responsibility as a national presence in this industry to give space for voices of black artists in a industry in which their voices are often excluded, cut out or brought in for one month in February when quote unquote Broadway or regional theaters are doing the quote unquote black shows. So how could we fight against all of that while also being the best advocate and ally for our black brothers and sisters at the same time providing them a financial um, component to lending their voice to us at a time where COVID has also hit our industry horribly financially and disproportionately to black and brown artists. I, I'd like to know, since you've, you've got a couple of interviews under your belt, right? You've got, it's been a, a few for sure. Um, and what ways do you think the current movement is even impacting 
the interviews that you're having? Um, and also in what ways do you think COVID? I mean, I've had the pleasure of being in your studio and like having to, like everybody's masked up and everybody's like high-fiving and like, and, and like those things um, are diff difficult, I imagine as well, especially because you're, a lot of what you're speaking to is um, a connection. I don't know that you've used the word, but that is a lot of what you're speaking to is, is a connection um, with, with the audience and within the audience and with yourself and, and the communities. Um, how does COVID uh, impact even how you interview? Does that change um, some of the questions and also the movement? How is that impacting your interviews with these people? COVID sucks. <laughs> it has definitely changed the entire way we do business and the, and, and the way we conduct interviews just from a logistical point of view, as you saw when everyone is masked up and socially distanced and I'm having to like turn my body 70 degrees in order to interview someone to make sure we're six feet away. But I think I found, and Allison, you may have more insight just kind of being a listener in the room when we do the interviews, that in the interviews themselves, COVID as a topic isn't necessarily, I don't think, influencing what we're talking about. The enhanced calls for racial justice definitely are influencing the conversations we're having and how those calls are affecting our sector and our artists. Um, so COVID is definitely, I think, having less of an impact on the actual conversation, more so it's having an impact on how we conduct the conversation. Yeah, I also think like here we are in 2020 and COVID is no exception to all of the like rampant systemic racism in our country. COVID is disproportionately affecting black and brown individuals. Um, and in South Dallas, where we're located, that's 82% of our population are black and brown individuals. And so we're seeing this like fire fueled not only by the Black Lives Matter movement that has you know, now been um, building and establishing itself for years. Um, and then that fueled by George Floyd and this like horrendous pandemic where people are dying um, disproportionately as well. So while it may not come up like explicitly, I think there's so much subtext there that's really um, driving these conversations. Yeah. yeah. And Janelle, when you talk about connection, there is definitely, I feel this desire for connection through art, because that's inherently what art does is create connections, whether you're in a gallery viewing a painting or you're sitting in the audience viewing something on stage. And the fact that we can provide a space for artists to share their performative art for audiences right now is also, I think, a huge deal for those artists because they want to create and then also our audiences want to take in. So it's been incredible to get the response we've gotten just from that perspective as well. You know, it's funny you you say that um, about it not being like COVID is in the room, but it's not in the room. <clears throat> There's been um, a, a couple of conversations I've had in various spaces with people who um, it's, I think this happens with every time, unfortunately, every time someone is killed, um, i.e. yesterday. Um, but anytime uh, someone is killed, um, where people say all of a sudden, like the phrase all of a sudden mm -hmm. happens. Um, and I think that that, in I, I, and, and some of the conversations I've had, some people have said, well, now that COVID is here, all of a sudden everybody's paying attention. Um, what do you 
say to that since you're in the rooms with these people one-on-one whether you're talking about um from the artists who are saying like from people who are saying oh now you're making a big deal about it what are you hearing from those art um from those artists and maybe what are you hearing from your community when they're saying all of a sudden is that a thing that you hear or, or feel or what do you say to people who say that you know what i'm realizing right now is that from an organizational standpoint, we actually did go through an all of a sudden phase of all of a sudden a man died and we had to watch him die for almost nine minutes. So all of a sudden we're going to increase our work in this uh, space. I fought really hard and Allison was right there with me against that narrative because we have been trying to really be in this space since the first day we were hired because it's never been an all of a sudden for us or me personally, Allison, I don't mean to speak for you, but for me personally, it's never been an all of a sudden. And maybe it's because I'm a black man. Um, it's always been with me and how I program and how I approach the communities in which we work with that there are these systemic problems ingrained in our society that inherently is against these communities. So how can we program to the best that we can to help that and find a solution or find a solution, just help in any way that we can. Um, so we found ourselves actually at a critical, I think, point, like a conflict point with our organization uh, back in back when George Floyd's death happened because Allison and I and the team, we were like, well, we've been doing this for almost a year now that we've been at DSM. But now all of a sudden this has happened, the organization wants to put kind of our mouth behind it. And that was actually a really hard thing, I think, for me to handle for a long time, but which is why I think these programs are so important. And I'm happy now that they are happening and they can happen. Yeah. Yeah, I think my initial response to that is like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> like we're an almost 80 year old organization and this work is long overdue. And um, I think Devon and I and, and the people that we work with now are getting to the point, well, Devon's always been there, um, where uh, it's like, yeah, we're not, um, I don't think we feel the impulse to hide that. Rather, it's acknowledgement and, and progress as best as we can. Yeah. And knowing that that progress is, is long overdue and far too slow. Yeah. yeah. Um, and close to hide, Allison. That that kind of hit me a little hard. There. <laughs> because I think up until the point that we are now, like there was this impulse to hide kind of the quote unquote agenda. Yeah. It was a real thing. People were saying that we had an agenda attached to what we were doing. Yeah. That there, there was an impulse to kind of subtly slide that into what we were doing in the hopes of making a difference. Where now we're just kind of out and about about it of the here's what it is, here's the point of it. If you don't like it, then let's talk about why you don't like it and the racism behind why you don't like it. It's funny, because now I have 18 other questions. This is why I tell you, don't really look at the sheet. <laughs> um, but, okay, so, so okay, wow. Um, which, which road? Two roads. I was like, did we even yeah. answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> you, did. you did answer the question, and now I have 12 others. Um, no, so, the, so, A, my question would be, how did that make you feel when you know you've been doing this work? And and the reason I'm asking that question, A, because I'm interested how you feel, but also too, I'm wondering about people who maybe in other organizations, when especially right now you are seeing um, 
a large community and like a right now it's really hard to be a corporation and not have made a statement um about this um and so i feel like um i have i have a lot of friends who have reached out to me and have been like i'm gonna write this letter to my um supervisors and i just want you to review it and i have to ask questions like how much do you care about your job because i can help you write this letter but what you're saying like i just need to know what level um but for people who are in that moment where they're like i care about my job um i want to remain there and I've been saying this for so long because I can imagine that's a sting where it's okay. like it took you watching somebody die. It wasn't that I came to you and said, my voice is consistently overlooked in this room. It wasn't that I came to you and I asked for, um, you know, help in this in this situation or I felt uh, marginalized or discriminated in the situation. It wasn't those things where it was me personally. It was you watching this man die and also the pressure from the outside world telling you you have to say something. That's what made you speak. Um, I imagine, um, at least I can from a personal standpoint, that that hits people hard. And I'm wondering if you felt that um, and how did you overcome that to continue doing the work? Because I can imagine if you have that kind of sting and I've talked to people who are like, well, figure it out on your own. I tried to help you. So <laughs> like, what, how do you overcome that? How did you become the bigger person if you had to overcome it? <laughs> I, I watch, I'm watching you guys think so that that silence that you guys are hearing is not them looking at me with a blank face. It's them looking at me like, I don't know. Uh, you're going to make me emotional for a second because now I'm looking back to like, that moment um because i did fear for my job when we started being louder about this i had in a very specific example when the you know when the protests were really going on in dallas and people were asking me devon where are you why aren't you out my response was because if i am out and i'm arrested am I gonna lose my job? Will my organization support me? Or will they say, you were now arrested for this, therefore you can't be associated with our organization. And then that thought on top of like the, my identity as a black man in a position of power, like those, that intersectionality there also hit me hard of, well, as a black man in a position of power, you have a duty now always have, but especially now, to make your voice heard. But again, another layer of this is there's that lane you walk in when you're a Black person in power of, do you want to keep your power and make slight change? Or do you want to go really drastic with the work that you do and the words that you say, step outside the normative lane and lose the power that you have and then be able to make no change because you have no idea who's going to come after you. And that took a really heavy toll on me mentally. Uh, and my kind of closest friend saw that when I was spending the weekends kind of crying my eyes out of like, this is just all so much, but it's like, at least I'm alive. Right. But it's still personally, it, it, took a heavy toll, a very, very heavy toll. Um, and it still does to this day uh, when I talk about the work to our white counterparts, our white board members, our white friends at sister organizations across the country. 
there's definitely still that sense of, all right, Devon, be careful of how much or how far you go because you don't want to make it seem like you're going too far and then you don't have the job that you have. I, um, that is, it seems like a tightrope. I think it is a tightrope tight rope that um, many Black people in um, positions of power are familiar with. I feel like I've felt that before um, because I, I understand what you're saying. So you're also talking about I'm in this position of power. It's my duty to, you know, advocate for myself and for for those that come after me. But how far do I advocate to where I lose the position of power, which gives me the ability to advocate? It's it's yeah. this it's this cycle. It's like this is this is the gift that I'm given, but in utilizing the gift that I'm given, I can sacrifice the gift that I'm given. And how do yeah. you how do you walk with that? Um, Allison, I'm curious how much of that you noticed of Devon, how much of that, since you work very closely with him, how much of that do you, did you, I'm putting you absolutely on the spot because he's right in front of you. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, Devon is a very private person, but luckily I am a very emotional person um, and, and an empathetic one. And that's a, a gift that I think theater and storytelling has really lent me. And so I think my role in that was knowing that about Devon, how can I best support him professionally um and then on top of that um just the inescapable privilege of my status as a white person um so I think pushing the organization as much as I could from my position as a white person and also my position in the organization um was the kind of tactic that I took there, I guess. I think I was always aware of that emotional experience for Devon in theory, but he is um, unfortunately, as he should not have to be, um, of this massive champion of um, unrelenting advocacy for himself and for the causes that he cares about. If there's one thing I know about Devon, it's how deeply he is driven by his passion for our community and his consistent awareness of um, who he's working for. And it's truly amazing to witness um, someone who shows that level of dedication and, and selflessness and awareness on an everyday basis. So I, I think for me, it was just supporting him as best as I can and acknowledging um, the places where my voice should and should not be in this conversation. So I want to ask a very pointed question for people yeah. listening to it and have um, um, experienced that. What did you do to keep going when you're in an organization that it seems like the light turned on for them and you've been holding the flashlight for so long? what did you do to keep going and how are you continuing to empower yourself and, and take care of yourself so that you can help move the organization? Because I'm assuming that you are several steps ahead of them, right? If this is a work that you've been pushing for, <laughs> you're several steps ahead of them. And for many people right now in, in corporate spaces um, that are othered specifically, but right now, and, and since we're talking about Black art in particular, um, Black people in spaces like this, um, you're, you're, you're already several steps ahead of the organization that you're hoping 
will just turn around and kind of look at you and be like, this is what I've been talking about. How, what internal thing did you do to keep going and help that organization take a few steps forward and a few more steps forward? For me, it was a constant reminder and looking at the impact whether it meant looking at a performance by one of our students who we have worked with, whether it meant going to volunteer at City Square in the heart of South Dallas that we do every single week and interacting with those neighbors, whether it meant reading a program description and the impact that we know that program is having, that's what kept me going um, on a personal and professional level. Allison is right. I am not an emotional person. I am very much, and Janelle, I think I've told you, like, when it comes to that thinking, feeling balance, feelings, like, just don't really have a place in my world. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, everything is mental. Everything is constantly up here in my brain. So, for me, when it came to, like, just keep going, personally and professionally, it was keep going, because if you don't, those that you are doing your best to help won't have that help anymore. And the thought of that breaks my heart. And that's not just for DSM, the work we do at DSM. That's for the work that I've always done in my career of the thought of one person missing out because I couldn't be strong enough. That's my motivation. Well, I mean, I'd be a healthy motivation to some people. That- <laughs> Because I understand the privilege that I have just being able to afford an apartment, afford groceries, afford a car and car insurance. Like, I, my basic needs are met. There are some people whose basic needs aren't met who live literally two minutes on the street from me. So if DSM can have some kind of positive impact in their life through the work that we do, then damn it, we're going to do it. And we're going to do it sincerely. And so we have to push the organization to get to a point of sincerity rather than a point of, oh, we're doing this because it's a national trend and we feel like we have to. No, this is a must now, before, and forever. Yeah, I think about a lot that like um, triangle that has the line on it and it's like at the top point of the triangle here is all the like socially acceptable forms of racism and then underneath the triangle are all the like um, non-socially acceptable forms of racism and I'm inspired by just the idea of like imploding the triangle that's kind of a counterpart to that where we have this like, oh, that's scary. Like, do we as an organization have a place to say Black Lives Matter? Is that in the like lower level of the triangle as far as socially acceptable activism? And I just think like, screw that. Like people are dying. (laughs) We are not at a place where Black Lives Matter should be a political statement. And the only place that it should get political is when we are voting people politically out of office who do not believe that Black Lives Matter. Um, So I just have this image in my head of like exploding the idea of, of socially acceptable activism, especially in theater, which is inherently a socially activist art form. Um, And then having um, people around me like Devon who are inspiring to me. So one thing I've noticed is that it seems like the, at least the interviews I have seen and the ones that I know you have coming out are a lot of women. Is that intentional? Is that, and, and, and what is that? (laughs) I'll I'll jump in here only because I am the one who lines up the interviews typically. (laughs) Um, Yes. hundred percent intentional. Um, 
our country and um, society are, are built on the backs of black women. Um, black women are historically paid 60 cents less on the dollar, something like that than white men. And black women's voices are some of the most um, oft overlooked and, and valuable ones in our society. Cause not only are they having the impact of being a female, which I have a, a little bit of experience with, or I guess, you know, experience with being a female, a white female. Um, but then that is intersectioned with the experience of being a black person. And so um, those voices, need to be heard. Yeah. Yeah. I will say, so we didn't actually interview a male identifying person until like extremely recently. The day that you came to interview, that was our first time. And we had done what's four or five before that. Yeah. It was like, this, it was this weird shift. I mentioned this to Devon after our first four videos came out. I was like, oh, these are four women. And it was almost unintentional. These were just people who really inspired us and whose stories we really mm -hmm. felt like needed to be told. And so while it was an intentional, it might've been like an unconsciously <laughs> intentional. Yeah. And that's where I think I want to get our organization to is like where these decisions aren't quote unquote intentional decisions. They really just were us being inspired by these great people who we just know their great work and they happen to be black women because that's who we are inspired by. And that's who helps push our work forward. And that's where I really want our organization to get to at some point. It's like, where we, have to, we don't have to think about it anymore. It's just ingrained in who we are and what in our DNA. Arguably you could say that you, you may have like had a hunger for those stories too um that maybe that that's you you know that they're out there but you now have that ability to like satisfy that yeah. hunger that thirst for those stories so that's and it wasn't hard to find them too so when people also give that excuse of like oh we just can't find people to tell these stories well allison has found them and found <laughs> them quickly <laughs> like they are out there so there just is no excuse. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, I would say, like, there's nobody else who can tell these stories. You know, I mean, I think about that when I see, like, a show that has an all-white cast and someone says, like, oh, those are the best people who showed up to the room. Those weren't the best people who showed up to the room because they're not reflecting an accurate depiction of the audience who is coming to see the show. Mm -hmm. So even though a white person might sound marginally better objectively singing this song, casting a white person in every single role is not telling that story in the best possible way. I just think that that mindset of casting can be carried over, you know, to our whole world view of stories. For sure. Um, so what obstacles have you faced then? And this could be like, I, I feel like we talk about this a lot pre GF, pre George Floyd, um, because I do think that there is that whole awakening that's happened. So like, even if this is pre George Floyd, if this is in, you know, previous, um, um, places of employment, um, or even other experiences, even volunteering um, in other organizations. What um, obstacles have you faced when you're trying to mobilize an entire organization and move it forward? I'm going to make this sound much simpler than what it actually is, because it's actually much more complex. The biggest obstacle for me has been trying to make people understand that what we do is actually great and beneficial 
not just from a surface level. So yeah, surface level, it looks good, it sounds good, but deeper than that, there's reasons why we do it that make it great. That's the hardest part of, I think, my job and the business biggest obstacle I face in my job, not just here at DSM, but in also in other roles I've ever had is, yeah, our programs look great and they can be really sellable to funders on the surface, but can we talk about the deeper levels behind why we do what we do? Because to me, that's the core reason of why we do it. I know that sounded very simple. It's <laughs> very much simplified that. <laughs> it, it, it sounds simple, simple in that you have like a very simple answer, but like the solution is like 8 billion layers of <laughs> how to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a reason why we are the community partnerships department too, and not a community engagement department or a uh, like community liaison department. Um, and that's because Devon um, and myself don't really consider ourselves to be like this asset that the community needs but rather how can we meet our community where they are and sometimes um that as an objective can feel like it's conflict with maybe um some different objectives from some different parts of our organization even though they're so fluidly aligned in our mind it's just translating that and making sure that's effectively communicated as far as um partnering with our community and meeting their needs rather than serving our own first will in turn be the best thing for for dsm and, and for our community alike yeah. yeah allison can i just jump off of something you just said because this is also at the core of our work too of like this notion of our community needs the arts well when we say that or when people say that what are they backing that up with yeah, yeah there's data out there that the arts increase standardized tests students have access to the arts get, have higher to pass rates and standardized test scores are less likely to drop out of high school or more likely to enroll in college et cetera, et cetera. but from our community standpoint the one in which we live and sit in every day when we say they need the arts we have to ask ourselves as an organization who has dictated that and why i i actually have a question it's like maybe a two-part question that i have because I think maybe the answers will will tie into each other. So as individuals, I know that you both have your own stake in various movements. You're both advocates and ad allies in various movements. So I am interested to know how you're able to translate that, your individual, your personal you, your at-home you, and your at-home wants, needs, and hopes, and desires, um, and how you're able to channel that into a professional um, environment um, and if there's a line that you kind of have to draw with yourself, which would lead me to the other question, which would be, do you have any personal hangups? Like, is there, do you ever feel an internal tug of war um, with anything in particular? <laughs> These like really deep head nods <laughs> and deep breaths that are happening. Are so telling. Allison, you want to take that one first? <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, there's that like overarching idea, this being a job. And so can anyone ever bring their full self to their professional environment? Mm -hmm. 
I would love to meet that person. <laughs> but there is a, a, a level of professionalism there. But that intersected when you were a member of a minority group um, and you don't feel like you're protected um, in a workplace makes work really difficult. So that's where I think the difference is. Um, like my bringing my queer identity into the workplace is not a question of... Um, personal political leanings or anything along those lines it's a question of like my safety you know and my um basic human dignity is it going to be acknowledged and not only acknowledged but upheld and and celebrated rather than just accepted um so that can be hard to walk that line um especially in an environment like theater when a lot of people can make the assumption that we're working um, with people who have the same like identities and individualities and mindsets. And that's not always the case. Um, there are always hangups with bringing your full self to a workplace. And then especially um, for me, I, I hesitate to call myself an ally only because I don't think that's a title that I deserve to give myself. Like if I'm going to be an ally to the black community, then that's something the black community gets to decide, not that I just get to name myself. Um, but as I'm working towards advocacy for black indigenous and people of color and feel this like fuel and fire deep in my gut in order to find equity in my industry and in my country and in my world, Oftentimes I am most effective in catching flies with honey rather than water as a white person with privilege to speak in spaces that um, black indigenous and people of color might not have the privilege to speak as fully in. So um, like reining that fire into the most effective method of advocacy is, is a line to walk. I just want to say, first and foremost, I actually think Allison is the best and most incredible ally and advocate anyone could ever ask for as a friend or as a professional connection. And Not to be clear, he has said that without you in the room. So that is a genuine feeling. Just to like, be clear, he has said that without you in the room. I 100% believe that because not only will Allison speak with you when you need her by your side, she will speak for you when you are not strong enough to speak for yourself. And she will do it from a place of empathy and compassion that also brings your voice in. So I, I'm sorry, I disagree with you, Allison. You are with one of the best allies and advocates that we have as a black community. And anybody should be proud to be associated with you and the work that you do. So I want to put that out there first and foremost, because the work that we do would not be possible without her and that strength that she brings. Um, when it comes to this kind of conflict of identities, 100% yes. Like every day I go to work, my identities, I feel like, conflict with each other and not in the fact that of like, which one am I going to show today? More in like, you know, and we have a certain budget that we have in order to do a certain amount of programs. So which causes are we gonna focus on right now, right? Like, I'm so proud to be a part of the LGBTQ community. I'm so part, proud to be black. 
like I have all these intersecting identities as Allison also mentioned of her intersecting identities. But at the end of the day, there's also so just so many resources that we have at our disposal at this time. And so I find the major conflict occurs when we sit down to plan our season and we're like, ah, <laughs> things that we want to focus on, but we just can't do it all. So like, what are we going to do? And like, to our credit, I think we try to do the best we can and touch on as much as we can, mm-hmm. but there's just never enough time. There's never enough money. But I think that's where my conflict actually exudes the most is the decisions you have to make of the type of program you're going to do rather than how I show up as who I am. Does it ever feel like it's a sacrifice that you're having to make? And if so, how do you deal with that? Um, because there's only so much programming you can do. It's not even about the money, but it's also about the time and it's also about the space and the visibility um, that you can adequately give to. Like you don't like it would be great if you could do everything, but if you only yeah. give them all five minutes, then is that really doing them justice, yeah. right? So like it's not just about money, but it's also about time and how do you deal with having to sacrifice that? Like how do you take that? Because, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is a sacrifice, but also, and this may just be because of a personal failing of mine, like, I also view it as, like, letting those communities down, which, again, breaks my heart when I have that feeling of we could just be doing so much great things to help everyone, but we can't because we have scarce resources. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, while it's a sacrifice, personally, for me, it's it goes deeper than that because I personally feel like I'm letting people down and I'm not giving the space and the respect to those voices that sometimes need them and what that balance is. It's, it's hard. And I, and I'm coming at it from like an arts management perspective when there are people working in, you know, for food insecurity organizations. I used to work for a food bank. When people working for like homeless uh, organizations, uh, battered women's organizations, like their decisions were even, I think, multiplied by even what I'm feeling. Um, So that's, I think, where I come at it from. Yeah, I think about like um, when you're directing a performance, a lot of the times what you're asking yourself is like, why this show for this audience at this time? So I think of our programs in those terms too. Why this program for this group at this time? And just try and um, make the intersection of all of those as um, beneficial as possible for the for the people that we're serving. Um, and try our best um and devon knows this well because i try and remind him as he try and reminds me and we we support each other in that that the places where we are making an impact matter as much as the places where we can't make an impact right now but hope to later on yeah well i'm interested in what you say to corporations not just arts organizations um i think and i this is me being on the outside of an arts organization i feel like it seems like it would be easier for an arts um organization to address some of these things by selecting programming like that is an easier fix i feel like it's it because it's still under the guise of entertainment right and people want to be entertained um 
but from the business standpoint of it, because you guys are dealing with things where you understand budgets and, and whatnot. Um, if we're talking to corporations um, that maybe don't have that art, like, you, you know, you're talking about a, I don't know, a, an accounting firm or something like that. What do you say to corporations who are concerned about their money um, and uh, their image and how, like, what have you learned even from having that leg up? What things do you think you could offer them? Because um, I think the art is a unique way of, of, of being able to shed light into these stories. I do think, I have said this, I'll get on my soapbox. I have said this before that I think other organizations could reach out to organizations like yours to have the programs um, that you guys do outside of what's on your stage. You could have those conversations. You could hire an arts organization to do that so that it's not like somebody coming in and like lecturing your staff about the need of equity or the need for equity. Um, but what, what type of advice would you give to corporations um, when you're in these rooms and you're having to think about budgets and you're having to think about these sacrifices that you guys make on a regular basis? What do you think you could offer them? What would you say to them when they say, but it's going to I'm going to lose money and I'm, it's going to affect my, my bottom line or um, my brand image. What do you say to that? I think you just have to ask yourself whose um, money are you losing? Is that money that ethically you can um, feel content about bringing into your organization? And are you going to let that dictate the decisions that your organization and company is going to make? The core of your question, Janelle, for me is this idea of profit over people. And if your organization, be it a corporate organization or a nonprofit organization like DSM is, is having that conversation of, oh, we're going to lose money if we do this, and you are just inherently already putting profit over people. You're saying your profit, which is, a, 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 additionally extra money that you don't need to fully operate, right, is worth more than the life of George Floyd, who you saw dying for nine minutes on the street. That's what you're saying. So you have to take a really, like, hard, truthful look at that fact, because at the core of what you're saying at that point is that, that money matters more than people, specifically Black people who are dying on our streets every single day. And if you're okay with that as a company or as an organization, I think you really got to do some soul searching and really check yourselves personally because that corporation is made up of people. So not only are you saying that your that money is more valuable than the lives being lost, but it's also more valuable than the people who are actually helping you try to build up your business. Um, and that's a fundamental conversation that is sometimes hard to, address with yourself, we had to do it at DSM of, you know, our department is not a revenue generating department, but what our department is, is a people first department, a community first department. Therefore the money that is quote unquote lost through the programs that we are doing is worth it because people should always come first. Mm. And also to Allison's point that especially as nonprofits and if you were okay with accepting donations with individuals who scream white supremacist values, who scream that black lives don't matter, 
who scream that Black Lives Matter is a political issue and really it's a human rights issue, you need to kind of check yourself as a nonprofit and say, what is our mission? And are we actually upholding that mission? Because to me, it sounds like you're not. Inherently, you just aren't. And if you think you are, you're lying to yourself. And I'm more than happy to facilitate that conversation with you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just this idea of like, you, as hard as it is, it, I don't think it is hard, especially for white people. I'm sorry, I just don't think it's difficult yeah. to look inside yourself and have that conversation. I think it's more difficult for people of color to look inside ourselves and be like, what are the, the traumas that are informing how we react in society every day rather than the white person sitting down and being like, why do I care more about money than the lives of a black person? So this is totally y'all's fault. Um, I could talk to you guys forever. So I still have like two or three more questions. I promise I'll try and keep it quick. Sorry, Jack, but not really. Um, so I, my, my, I guess my other question to the things that you're, the things that you're saying, um, what responsibility, because you guys are doing the work to, to help um, facilitate um, giving breath to, to these, these stories, right? You're helping to facilitate um, our, and I say our as a member of the artist community, like our ability to share different um, stories that often we're told don't matter, don't have a place or um, are unbelievable or, or what have you. You're giving us the space to do that. But there is a third part, um, a third party to, to this particular work. You have the creative, you have the person who will facilitate the creation um, for that creative, but then you have the audience. So what is the, the responsibility of the artist? And I ask that specifically because having grown up in theater and around um, theater and hearing people who have run theaters and, and concerns of people who have been um, in the rooms that, that, that do the work of facilitating, the thing that you hear, of course, is the money. Because as you said, there are still scarce resources and the people who um, pay for the tickets um, are often not reflective of these stories that you're trying to share. Um, so you could be talking, this answer could be to two different audiences. It could be the audience that doesn't go, and it could be the audience that doesn't consume this type of art. What is the responsibility um, of, of audience members, of we in the audience, um, in, this, in this relationship that you're talking about? You guys like give me the same answer every time. You both like take deep nods and deep breaths. Like, Okay. Because <laughs> it's just like you said, you had like three more questions. I feel like we could talk about this yeah. <laughs> probably five hours. But this is also a tricky kind of topic to talk about because they are a source of revenue for us. Yeah. But they do have a responsibility. Um, you know, money is power and how we use our money is kind of how we exhibit the power that we have and some of the privilege that we have. I would say kind of point blank, the responsibility of audiences should be to be as open and accepting as possible to the art they're seeing on stage, especially as, fingers crossed, that art becomes more inclusive, that art becomes more diverse, that art becomes more accessible. And not only be more open and accepting of the art itself, 
but be more open and accepting of those around you who are sitting next to you. Because I can't tell you how many times I have overheard audience members being like, oh, why are like these like group of students here next to me in this section? Or I kid you not, this was not at DSM, this is at another organization. Uh, and when I was seeing a show, I overheard a patron um, of this theater say, there are a lot of like, like brown people here right now. Like, this is strange. As our sector hopefully becomes more inclusive and accessible, our audiences are gonna look different across the board. So just, there was, I think the responsibility overall is be more accepting of the art that is in front of you and be more accepting of those who are now around you. I love that, Devon. I think uh, something I try and keep in constant consideration too is like, how does my positionality factor into how I'm viewing this piece of art? Like, I am always going to view this piece of art through my white lens. I'm always viewing this piece of art through my lens as a queer person, through my lens as a woman, through my lens as uh, the class up in. Um, so keeping all those questions in mind, like, how does my lens alter how I'm interpreting this piece? I'm also going to ask you a very, very blunt question with a fabricated quote, and I am using air quotes that you guys probably didn't <laughs> um, I say fabricated only because it's not a stretch. I've heard things like it. Um, so I am a white patron, and I say I really love the things that you're doing at DSM, but your Black Art Matters um, series is not for me because I am a white patron and these are stories about Black people. Mm -hmm. um, what do you say to me? Devon, can I share the anecdote that happened in our meeting the other week? Yeah. So I, uh, we were having a meeting with some folks on another department team of ours and someone had brought up, you know, the, the videos aren't getting as many views as I would like. Um, and we started this dialogue back and forth between me and him, who's another white person about uh, the length of the videos. And I was kind of joking like, oh yeah, I try and keep Devon on a time limit, but you know, <laughs> he has so many good things to ask, whatever. Um, and Devon, after we kind of had this exchange for a couple minutes, reminded all of us, as he so eloquently does usually, like, well, this is also a question of how willing people are to listen to Black voices. So I think my perspective um, that I was reminded of and that I would challenge that patron with would be to say, um, do you think it's not for you because it's not for you? Or do you think it's not for you because you haven't taken the time to listen? Um, and I would imagine you will find that it is for you if you do so. I will add to that. When someone says it's not for them, it could be for a variety of reasons. If it's if you say it's not for you simply because it's called Black Art Matters and it's Black artists speaking, that's a racist issue that then we need to address. If you say it's not for you simply because you just don't enjoy the conversation or the production quality, then it's like any other show, right? Like. There's some shows that come in here and you're just like, that one was not for me because I just did not enjoy it. So it's just a question of like, is it the content that you're saying is not for you or just like the enjoyability of the art that's not for you? I think those are two different things and two yeah. different questions that I would then ask that patron um, to delve more into why they think it's not for them. Because that's also just a loaded statement to put out there that yeah. something isn't for me. <laughs>
And I think, I think I know for me personally, I've had that, that thing. I, I, a lot of times when I write, it depends. Sometimes when I write, I very intentionally make them brown people, um, whether they're black or Latinx, just because that's also kind of where I started doing a lot of my writing in terms of various communities. Um, but a lot of the times I very intentionally, and I get in trouble for this actually a lot when I'm writing um, film, when I'm writing screenplays, because I don't describe. Um, and that is a, a, a thing that I've gotten talked to by instructors um, several times where they'll say, you're not doing enough describing. Like, and I'm like, well, I gave you their age and I gave you, um, you know, their name. And for me, that's what matters. The reason I did not describe them as tall, dark, and handsome is because they could also be short, frumpy, and average. <laughs> I don't care. Um, um, and and it's because that person can also be the love interest of this other person if it, it like if it doesn't really feed to who they are. Um, but I I wonder, you know, I think back on um, when you had the the robust back in the 90s um you had like brown sugar and soul food and love jones and all of these movies that came out with a lot of black people a lot of people were like and even now a lot of people are like oh i've never seen that movie oh because it's black people because it's a lot of black people and so the assumption is that it's not for them um and i'm wondering if you're getting any pushback from that and and that type of i know i've heard that in working in theater before um, and being in the box office and having somebody ask me, now, is this going to be a black show? Like, I mean, no offense. I mean, like being in front of me, the black person asking me very specifically, is this going to be a black show? No offense, but is it going to be a black show like the last show was? Or like, I don't have a problem with black people. So I'm like, so you're counting the black people. You don't want the stage to look like Harlem. That what, what are you saying? Also, the stage probably does look like Harlem because that's being, never mind, whole different subject. The point is... <laughs> What like what what do you what do you say to people? Um, I just had this massive realization, Janelle, that when white people specifically say this isn't for me because there's a bunch of black people up there, that's also the same thing our black and brown communities are saying of why they don't come to our shows or come to our theater because they are not seeing themselves on our stage or they're not hearing their stories be told on our stages. So really, if a white person were to say that to me, I'd be like, well, <laughs> thank you for sharing that. You know now, you now know how it feels to have this feeling of exclusion of this art form that should be accessible to everyone, no matter what. And I just had that realization in my mind of like, there's a connection there. I don't understand why it has to be about who's, like there are black people on stage and I, I just, I'm, now I'm confusing myself. I'm, now I'm going on this rant in my head of like this theoretical white person. I'm like, <laughs> they're not my... even real. They're not even real. I know. <laughs> I just got really upset at this person for no reason. <laughs> I'm going to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them, even though they're not real. Then <laughs> get off my soapbox for a second. What have you guys learned from your experience in all of this? You've, you've done this work, you've been working hard to do this work. You've finally been given the platform to do this work. Um, what have you learned, whether that's from the fight to get to this point or, or the fight to 
continue to do what you're doing? What, what are, what, what have you learned from the entire experience? I guess for me, I've learned, definitely learned uh, patience. Professionally, I've always tried to be as patient, patient as possible, but I've definitely learned patience when it comes to seeing growth and movement forward happen. So that's what I've learned. But I also just want to make one clarification, Janelle, that you mentioned, we've been given a platform to do now do this work. That platform is probably a at most a two inch platform right now. It's not a four foot platform. It's not an eight foot platform. It's not a 16 foot platform. Our goal is for it to be a 32 foot platform. Whereas right now we're sitting at a two inch platform. Um, and I'm excited for the day that we get up to that higher platform with more resources and that day will come soon. And we've committed it as an organization to that happening. I just wanted to throw that thought out there. Yeah, I, I think um, again from a, a white person's place in this work. I, I lately it's just been doubled down on me the importance of of humility and humility in your perspective, but also humility in um, bringing the impulse to listen first in in most spaces that you're in. There's a two part question to my last question, um, and I'm just going to fuse the last two together. Um, specifically to to arts communities or arts organizations rather. What responsibility do you think that very specifically arts communities, arts organizations have in this particular fight? Um, and what is your hope for Black Art Matters um, as, as an organization like that? We are storytellers. We have the cold duty to tell the stories of our communities, especially communities that in our industry have not been heard as much as they should. And it's not a question of if they need to be told or if my organization needs to be the one to do the telling. The answer to both of those questions is yes, and they're long overdue. So I challenge any arts organization to form authentic connections with the communities who have not been represented on their stages and who deserve to be. And if they have been represented on their stages, I challenge the arts community to go and do more support of those, of those places and spaces because there is room to bring to light and justice so many stories on our stages and in our spaces. I think for me, I would challenge the arts community in total, but especially here in Dallas, to put BIPOC individuals in the room. I'm not saying put them in the room of roles of directors of education and engagement where they normally fall. Put them in the roles of VPs, presidents, executive directors. Put them in the role of board members. Take away these ridiculous stipulations that it takes to be on a freaking board and be more inclusive and bring those BIPOC individuals and their voices into that room because you will be so much better for it. And my second layer to that is that when you do that, give those individuals the resources they need to thrive because we need different resources to thrive. I'm lucky that my resource is Allison that I have the best advocate and ally by my side doing this work. 
and the organization has committed to her being that resource for me. There's something that you're taking away from the conversation that maybe you hadn't thought of before or something that you may be putting in your knapsack that's helpful to you um, that maybe you heard yourself say and you're like, hey, wait, I do need to do that more or I haven't been doing that the way I started out doing it or something like that. Um, and what is something that you want to leave for people who are listening? I always give you a minute. It's totally fine. You don't have to rock it. <laughs> we'll edit. <laughs> we'll edit that part. Okay, good. <laughs> Well, I am reminded of the individual accountability we all have from this conversation today, how truly this work starts with every person making a commitment to understand um, where they've come from, where they are, and where we can go with making sure that every human has not only basic human rights, but basic human dignity. This Mother Teresa quote that rings in my mind a lot in terms of personal accountability. And she says, I used to believe that God changes us through prayer. Now I know that prayer changes us and we change the world. And so it's that like taking this moment of like internal accountability and moving it beyond yourself. So I think consistently keeping in mind that you have a level of individual accountability and impact in this work. That's my biggest takeaway from today and that I hope people leave with as well. I think what I'm going to leave the conversation with is something that I actually didn't expect to be leaving the conversation with. And it's this thought that in order for our work to continue to be pushed forward as much as possible. I need to delve deeper into the brains of those who don't live, sleep and breathe our communities. And I don't know what that is gonna look like, but I think that's what I'm, that's what I'm gonna leave this conversation with. What I want people to take away is a quote that inspires my work every day, not to bounce off of Allison, um, but it's something I actually mentioned to a group of donors that I was giving a presentation to last week. And it's by um, Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from the Birmingham jail, where he says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. When you see one moment, one instant, one second of injustice, that injustice ripples out so far beyond where you can see, feel, touch, look. So note it and help do something about it, help correct it, whether it be through the arts, whether it be not through the arts. Help, if you can't make a difference, help us make that difference. Help us ensure that injustice stops and that justice prevails. And that's what I hope people take away from this conversation and from the work specifically that Allison and I do. I'm so grateful to you both for taking a moment to talk to us. I, I applaud the work that you're doing. I'm grateful for the work that you're doing. Um, I know people who are watching the work that you are doing, so I thank you. I know sometimes in the work that you're doing, it sometimes feels like you're in an echo chamber or perhaps you're by yourself. Um, but there are people watching you, so thank you. 
Um, and to those of us who are listening, thanks for joining us. And don't be afraid to tell your story. We'll see you next episode.